Hello, and welcome to Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with actor Nathaniel Chadwick, as well as director Zach Birnbaum. That's coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. Sometimes, when you're an actor, you can work for years before you get exposure, or as some people like to call it, your big break. My first guest, Nathaniel Chadwick, has been working in film for over a decade. He has acted in several short films, including Fanfare, Bacon and Eggs, Hey George, Waking, Melissa, and The Foreigner. Like many who are in the business, especially independent film, he has also worked in several other departments. He has been both a key grip and a gaffer, uh, and has also worked as a composer. He finally got his first lead role in the satire, The Last Porno Show, from writer-director Kiri Papoots. Kiri is an East Ender, like I was when I lived in Toronto, and has shot several films in Leslieville, including the documentary Gerard Street East and Coxwell and Gerard. He also casts a couple of local icons uh, in the last porno show. There is Christian Aldo, who runs a gallery uh, in the West End of Toronto, who plays the father in the last porno show. And then there is Wayne Larrabee, who cameos as an acting student. And if you're anywhere in Leslieville, you probably always see Wayne and his blonde mullet carrying his keyboard and busking on Queen Street East. The film is a satire of many things. Um, it can be explicit in time, but it's quite humorous. Uh, and as I talked with Nathaniel about, where does the humor come in explicit nudity uh, and sexuality? And also, how, do art, how can artists be careful about not getting you know, too far up their own asses or, or, or too far up their own egos. Uh, the film is out today, July 31st, uh, and this is my conversation with Nathaniel Chadwick. How's, uh, how's Toronto? Toronto's good. Toronto's good. It's warm. It's hot. 
It's all right. We're dealing with the COVID okay. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah, I was just in Toronto last week um, for some film stuff. And we had a, remember it was like a thunderstorm one day and then 37 the next. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, I'll take it over cold. So I, 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 there. I can't go. <laughs> fair, fair. But, uh, are you from, uh, Edm- where are you from, Edmonton? I'm in Victoria right now. Victoria, okay. Yeah, yeah, I uh, grew up here, but spent the last two and a half years in Toronto before I moved back due to COVID, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Yeah. Victoria's nice. I love it out there. My brother lives there. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, you grow up here and you kind of want to get out when you're 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Now, me and all my friends are slowly starting to migrate back. I think that's what happens when we get older. <laughs> yep. Yep. Right. You all. You always come back home, and I actually, I, I actually find that relates to to your film in a way. The last porno show. It's, you know, you you play a character who's sort of coming back home in a way, and and and, and dealing with uh, a, a reconciliation, I guess maybe, um, with, with with your dead father. How how did you approach a role like this? Well, this I. I did the kind of standard uh, actor stuff, um, you know, character studies. I, I tried to find films that were similar to the script. Um, I think the film that really resonated the most with me was uh, The Tenant um, by, uh, what's his name? Uh, who am I thinking of? Um, the guy that left for France. Because he's scared of he's in oh, Tarantino's Blan- movie. Blansky, yeah, I couldn't think of his name. The Tenant, because it's The Tenant, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about uh, kind of uh, someone who spirals out of control based on their environment. And I think that my character in this movie spirals out of control through not only the environment, but also the, the way he's pushing the limits of becoming a method actor. Um, but I was telling someone during the a last interview that all that kind of, all the preparation kind of, I threw it out the window when we got on set um, because the environment, the actual environment and the actors that Kire uh, chose, and as you saw in the movie, they completely absorbed me and, and they became the influencer to me. So every kind of little preparation that I thought I had, I threw it out. And I think that's kind of the way you're supposed to act anyway. So. Well, it, it struck me that intentionally or unintentionally, this film was a little bit meta uh, you know, yeah. you, you're an actor who's playing a method actor, you know, and it's, it's your character's first lead role. And I know this is your sort of first big lead role. Did, did, did was that conscious for you? And, and, and how did that whole, you know, actor playing an actor in your first lead role affect you as an actor playing this actor? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. It actually... It, it was kind of a cool because I got to, we, we filmed somewhat chronologically too. Um, so all the actor stuff we, we filmed when we got to theater mostly, and that was the second half of production. So it kind of came naturally to me. Uh, and like I said, I absorbed kind of what I've, since we shot chronologically, plus absorbing the, the environment of the theater and the characters, that kind of, that kind of influenced uh, the character, but also, um, you mentioned that it was kind of meta. Uh, I think it's like Kirei 
picked me because we've been friends for a while and he kind of knows my history. Uh, without getting too much into it, I kind of resonate with the character in terms of relationship with uh, uh, lack of with the, with the father too. So I think that's kind of the main reasons uh, why why he chose me. Um, and, you know, obviously it's the last porno show. So there's a lot of, you know, aspects of the film that deal with nudity and, and, and pornography and some of it can be quite explicit um and we sort of see that satire in, in the film within a film with um wayne and chad and, and ashley what were the kind of conversations that went on with with you and kiri and, and some of the other actors in, in terms of how do how do we go about this yeah that was particularly challenging because it was kind of the height of me too so uh everybody on set and especially Kiwi was was super super careful um about kind of dealing with that um the actress victoria uh dunsmore who played um uh why do i forget her name in ashley. the movie ashley uh she i don't think Kiwi could have picked a better better person not only is she an amazing actress but she was completely cool and we were all very open and had a lot of dialogue uh, during production. Um, so I just think it's just one of those things you just gotta be super open and, 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 and talk about openly. And then we did, and everyone was super comfortable when it came to filming, and, and that was that. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me that, that the character of Chad sort of represents the, the you know, pedantic, self, you know, self-obsessed director as artists, is is there a, is there a danger of maybe getting too far up our own you know too far up our own asses and sort of being like and then not being able to distinguish what is art and what is life? Yeah, for sure. Um, I personally don't know anyone has who's who's pushed the boundaries, but I mean we all know like you know name name a famous person you know Kanye West, a musician, or even people that don't even deal in the arts like. Uh, Elon Musk, who, who people who are completely passionate, they're just kind of so zoned in on one thing that, that they kind of forget about, you know, the reality and, and also, you know, in, in this case, other people's emotions. So yeah, especially when you're dealing with, with sex and, and pornography. I'm glad Kira wasn't as psycho as Chad, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, you, you know, um, I think there's always been misconceptions about the porn industry and sort of you know how it treats its performers and the 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 ethics of it did did you did you learn anything about that industry while, while making this film at all i actually didn't pay too much attention to the porn um i didn't kind of like fall into the aspect of like you know researching kind of like the porno world or anything like that um i think though kira is very fond of of wanting to show the other side of, of of porn obviously it's gritty and it has very dark undertones but underneath it obviously in the movie and if you you can make it through all the sex till the end you'll see kind of kira's main message uh, which is it's not always as ugly as as you you think on the outside. Is there 
is there humor in in nudity? You know, people still get squeamish around you know any talk of of sex or or, or nudity, and you know even the MMPA tends to rate nudity higher than violence for some reason. But especially in shooting yeah. like this, is is there humor in in being in this type of environment? I I think so. Uh, I mean, I'm 35 and. I still laugh, you know, if I get out of the shower, I'll, you know, if I'm jumping jacks naked, I'm going to laugh in front of my girlfriend and, you know, make a joke out of it. So I think it's good to be, to treat it, you know, like humor and, and fun and definitely on set, you know, when there's just so much porn in this movie, it, it became humorous. I think it's the way to deal with it, uh, to get past any kind of squeamishness. Um, but I, I love what I love what Chad says to to your character. He's like, it's not about acting; it's about connection. Um, what kind of connection do you, do you have to have not only to the character that you're playing, but to the other actors that you're working with? Yeah, I think I think that's the the best part of acting is when other characters just believe in their character, believe in the script, and when it comes to the part where you act and you rehearse together it just it feels so natural and in terms of connection as long as the person has a deep understanding of the script and the character even if they don't uh even if it doesn't actually you know the director doesn't actually want a certain connection as long as the actor believes in something and they're 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 more focused on just engaging with the other actors as opposed to oh i need to step here and do this and do that that is the, the most important thing as an actor, for sure. The other aspect, you know, there there are two children, young performers uh, in this movie, uh, Amon and is it Wes Wesley? I, for, I forget. They're, I think that's his name. Yeah, his name. Um, you know, how do you how do you sort of discuss with, with your co-stars? you know, young co-stars in, in a film like this, how, how do you sort of help them be comfortable in situations that they may be unfamiliar with? Yeah, uh, I, I actually wasn't there for any of those scenes because they were the uh, a different timeline. They were, the, they were the younger version of me. So I actually wasn't there. I met them a couple times, um, but I, I had lots of talks with Kire about this and I was actually sitting with him during a lot of the audition process. So I got to um, meet the kids when they were auditioning. And I think Kire was very important um, to kind of give them a full script and talk about, you know, look, this is what kind of movie it is. There's this, this, and this in it. Um, I just, I think it's just a communication. The same with what we're talking about with the other actors uh, when it came to the sex scenes. And Kira was was very good at at doing that. I, you'd have to kind of ask him what exactly they talked about, other than, than what I just mentioned. You know, speaking of auditions, we actually see Wayne in the film go on a couple of auditions. Yeah. What mm -hmm. was that like for you? You know, here you are filming this movie. You're the lead, and you're acting out auditions on camera. Yeah, that that was that was a super fun day. Well, there's there's a couple auditions. Um, one is a little bit more intimate, uh, but the other one where I got to play a character, uh, that was just like acting school again. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. He, Kirei kind of just let, he pick something and just go with it. So I got to pick a couple characters on the day and 
I guess he's he chose the cop one. I and I know in in both instances you talk about oh you, you want to improv a little bit. Um, did you did you get to do any improv on the set or, or did you how much did you stick to the script? Totally. Well, uh, Kire is is awesome at letting people you know he finds natural actors. Um, and so a lot of, I'd say probably 60 to 70% of the, the movie was actually improvised. Um, and again, like the characters that, that are in that movie uh, and like people like Frank D'Angelo, you, you have to improvise. <laughs> you don't have any room for script with Frank. Uh, there's a couple scenes that I think got removed where Frank D'Angelo was actually angry at me because I wasn't doing something that he told me to do. So I had to kind of improvise there uh, or else he'd probably kill me in real life. So uh, yeah, lots of improvisation going on. And, and in the acting class, you briefly share a moment with Wayne Larrabee, who's kind of this Leslieville legend icon. I don't know exactly, but you know, I always would seem around, you know, carrying that. Yeah. And let, you know, his, I, I think he's the most famous person out, out of this whole movie. Yeah. Uh, everyone, everyone always approaches me and says, Oh, I saw Wayne the other day. I saw Wayne. Yeah. Wayne, uh, we've known Wayne for a long time and, and Kira's always been fun of kind of working with him and kind of helping him out. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything, but I know that he's Kira's written a couple of scripts, uh, about him and based on that character. So yeah, they've been friends for a while. Is that where your name, is that where the character's name came from? Yeah, I think so. I think that that Kirei, that's a question for Kirei, but I believe that that it did. And I think the last name, I don't know if it's in the movie, but Boole is based off Stephen Boole just because we love uh, It's On Me. Um, one sort of trope or stereotype that I did notice is both Al and then later on Wayne have this ridiculous mustache, which I think when you're talking about porn, there's this idea of like, oh, that that's a you know the 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 creepy porn stash, for example. Um, why is that look that you know the the slightly sleazy look? Why is that such a stereotype of porn? Do you think? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I think I think the '70s. A lot of people when they think porn. Uh, I mean, the 70s comes to mind. I don't know if that's just because of Boogie Nights or, or something, but I think porn has such a 70s tone to it. And I guess the look back then was the mustache. Um, and I, I think that's where it comes from. It's just, that's what people did back then. The film is set uh, in Leslieville. I walked by that theater numerous times. Um, oh, yeah. What was it like because it's so rare that you actually get to shoot in such a very, very specific location. Um, what was that like for you actually sort of shooting in the neighborhood that it was set in? Yeah, it was awesome. And again, Kire likes to pick authentic characters and the setting is another authentic character that he likes to pick. Um, he's an East End guy and he swears by the East End and he is defending the East End and he cares about gentrification. He doesn't want it to happen. He, he, so he really wanted to capture, I think, not only uh, the characters from the East End, but the, the East End itself. 
Uh, and he's made a few documentaries about the East End as well uh, that have nothing to do with the movie. So, yeah, it was great to to work uh, in that in that theater and and in and in Toronto. Well, it's interesting because that theater is almost like is a character, and I I would argue that other than your character, it's sort of the the lead, the the, the central focus of the film. How do you a- approach? I guess acting opposite an inanimate or sort of you know you know an idea of a character more than an actual character itself yeah again like it's when you go into that theater and i'm lucky that we we filmed the second portion of the movie uh somewhat chronologically we did it there because that theater was the most important character that influenced me um getting into that grimy old smelly theater we had problems with bed bugs you know it was a desert not bed bugs fleas were in the movie uh, or in the theater uh when we're filming you know it just it just like absorbed you and it wasn't it wasn't a nice place to particularly be in it wasn't comfortable i hated filming there but it absorbed i absorbed the energy of that theater and it absolutely you know turns you into another person when you walk into it uh, and speaking of, well, you know, we talked a little bit about Wayne Larrabee. The other sort of, I guess, known person, or at least I know him personally, is uh, Christian Aldo, who, yeah. who plays your father. And I didn't recognize him at first because I, th- I think he, it feels like he put on weight for that role. Um, but I, th- I thought he was the perfect casting choice because I've met, I've, totally. met, the, I've met the guy in real life and in and, and his gallery. Um, and I know you didn't really get to work with him, but did, did, if you got to meet him, did you two talk about maybe the re- the relationship in, in this movie between the two characters? Yeah, well, he's a great guy. He's a character, uh, as you probably know when you met him, uh, full of energy. I, um, and I didn't get to work with him on set, obviously, because that wasn't, he played my father. Yeah. We didn't get to work together. But uh, what I did see, you know, he's a, he's a great actor. Um, I think Kiray nailed uh, picking him as a, as my father. Um, yeah, I just wish I got to work with them. There's a, a, a recurring line or, or joke in the film where Wayne says there are two types of people, those who are happy and those who make people happy. Um, mm-hmm. Do you believe that? And, and have you thought about which one you are? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I do believe it. Uh, I, I kind of like to think that you can be both. At least that's what I'm trying to be. Um, yeah, I think I think that's about it. You know, we we talked about the the uh, the the humor in in nudity and in, in sort of in, in that environment. Do you have a, a a favorite moment from from shooting? Yeah, I have a bunch. Um, two come to mind. The first one was the scene where I uh, had sex with the TV. That was an early day of filming and the first couple days were a little bland. It was a little tough. Uh, And then all of a sudden, uh, I think we had to film a very late night. It was an all nighter. That was the last thing we had to shoot. Uh, And it was, I was tired. Everybody was tired. We were crammed in this little apartment. There was a crew of about 30 people. And then Kiray's like, okay, yeah, now we have to film you having sex with the TV. I think it was about six in the morning. We've been up all night. And I just was not happy. 
uh, and I let it out on that TV and uh, it broke the ice and it, it broke the ice of, of on the set. And I guess it kind of just, who cares after what happens after this? You know, I can't be embarrassed anymore. Um, I think that scene really helped me as an actor. The second one uh, is, is the theater scene where uh, I, the guy has his pants down and I told him to put his pants on. That was just pure fun. We filmed that scene so much and it was just laughter all over set. This film, I think, ultimately is about the relationship between Wayne and, and Al and, you know, maybe him coming to terms with that. And I do you think about how maybe relationships with our parents change or evolve a, a, as we get older and, and how much of that did, did come came into Wayne? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess an, an, another factor I, I should mention uh, to your question is I, I uh, had a kid, uh, my partner was pregnant during filming. So that was another layer on top of uh, everything. Um, so I, I was thinking about parenthood a lot, naturally. Um, and yeah, I think, I think, you know, you get to a certain age where you stop looking at your parents as as parents, but just people. And uh, I think kind of Wayne's character uh, kind of went through that. And I kind of thought about that a lot while filming. How much has, has now, now that you are a parent, congratulations. Uh, Thank you. How, how much has being a parent changed your approach to, to either uh, acting or, or art in general? Well, I think time, times, you, you, time flies by, uh, and it's kind of brought to the importance of, you know, you don't have that much time, so make the most out of whatever you can. Um, other than that, it's it's brought a new layer of, of happiness and joy to my life, um, and appreciation, uh, and passion. How how is it raising such a young one in in quarantine? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's good because I'm not working right now and I get to spend a lot of time with my son. Um, that's the best part. The bad part is, you know, we can't take him to the aquarium, you know, <laughs> right now. So there's pros and cons. Yeah. You know, I, I do think in a way this film is a, is a satire of a film industry. Um, how do you think the industry is going to look when we come out of this in, you know, six months, a year, five years? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I have no idea. Um, I mean, it was already going a certain way and it was already going towards, um, you know, theaters were kind of on the way down regardless of, of COVID. And unfortunately, um, it looks like it's even going to happen much quicker than we all uh, wished for. Um, that is a big aspect of it, but I think that people are still going to continue to make movies and still love movies. Um, I do, I do play a lot of video games and I think that there's going to be this interesting merge of video games and people that have worked in films. Um, I don't know how, but I think a lot of like video games have a lot more stories and narrative now. And I think that the, 
you know, team people are going to mix those together and uh, make better video games with uh, better stories and more better cinematography and stuff like that. Well, yeah, there's The Last of Us and The Last of Us, yeah. 2, which I just think broke all kind, it broke all kinds of records when the second yep. one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think there's going to be a lot of stuff. I hope there's a lot of stuff like that. I hope I can get into stuff like that. And do, do you think that it'll actually be a good thing for indie film? Because, you know, whether we like it or not, we'll have to become more self-reliant and not rely on the big studios to, to help us yeah. film. So will it actually be a good thing? That is tough. Uh, unfortunately, this movie got rejected from uh, iTunes um, because of its nudity and stuff like that. And that made me realize long gone are the days where we can go to our local uh, video store um, and just get a cool indie film that has lots of nudity or maybe some violence or could be controversial in one way or another. So it kind of scares me that it kind of was a reality check for, for me and for Kirei that these kind of indie films where you could do whatever you want, it's, it's harder to get released and harder to get eyes on it now. So yeah, thinking like that and, and to your question, it's, it's, it's totally going to be, I hope that it doesn't end up like that. I hope that more independent um, producers and uh distributors will come out uh, because of this. Um, like there's companies like A24 and stuff like that, that are, that bring me hope. Um, I just hope that keeps growing. And, and what do you think the, can... state of the industry is like in Canada right now? Yeah. I mean, COVID aside, um, it's, it's in a, it's in a, it's in a weird spot. Uh, I've been going to TIFF for a while. And I've kind of seen, I, I'm not seeing the films like, like Key Rays, uh, like I used to maybe eight years ago. I feel like there's not a lot of risk. And I don't know if that's a Canadian thing or if it's an international thing. Um, but the trend is I'm seeing a lot of, not safe, but I'm just not seeing crazy risk. Uh, and that's why I'm I'm pretty proud to work with Kirei and know Kirei as a friend and to be in this movie, um, because I think cinema is all about taking risk. And if if you don't have someone like Kirei pushing the the limits of storytelling, um, even if it doesn't end up being a good movie, you gotta take those risks. I'm I'm not seeing them anymore. What do you? Not think... as much as I used to, anyways. What ultimately do you want the audience? to take away from a film like this? I think in particular this movie, I think they should laugh at, laugh at porn, have fun with porn. It's not always, it doesn't have to be this dark, weird taboo thing. You know, there's, a, there's heart in the porno industry and you know, even going beyond that, if there's other industries, there's there's always people that have a heart. Uh, well, the film is The Last Porno Show. It's out July 31st on streaming uh, yep. and video on demand. It's, it's not on iTunes, unfortunately, but there are plenty of other streaming yeah. sites out there where... Yeah. It's on Vimeo. It's on Vimeo. Vimeo yes, um, where, where one can find the film. 
Uh, Nathaniel Chadwick, thanks so much, man. This has been great. Hey, nice to meet you, Dan. Thank you very much. Take care. That was my conversation with Nathaniel Chadwick. He is the star of the new film, The Last Porno Show. As of today, July 31st, it is available for streaming. From acting to directing, we move. And my next guest is a writer-director from Toronto. His new film, it's actually a short film called The Announcement, and it's great. It's a little 11-minute piece with essentially no dialogue and music playing throughout. I didn't realize this, but he, he told me after an interview that he remembered when I talked to him back in the winter of 2018 uh, for a film that he had played at the Whistler Film Festival called Dancing Dogs of Dombrova, which I now remember seeing as a, a film about an estranged sister and brother travel to Poland at the request of their dying grandmother to retrieve an object from their past. He has done a couple other features as well. There was, and now, a word from our sponsor, uh, which was written by Michael Hamilton Wright and starred Bruce Greenwood, Parker Posey, and Callum Blue. Uh, and he has also done the feature Cold Deck, which stars Paul Sorvino and Robert Nepper. His new film is The Announcement. It's a short film uh, and it's available for streaming starting August 4th. This is my conversation with Zach Birnbaum. How's, uh, how's quarantine life treating you? Yeah, you know, it's okay. It's all right. It's, uh, I guess, like everybody else, it's, you know, tough for some days and easy on others. And luckily, I work from home, like I have a home office anyways. And so the transition wasn't as drastic. But it's still you feel cooped up. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yourself? Uh yeah, you know, it's it's I mean, I'm like you. I'm I'm an artist, right? So I I tend to work from home a lot, but sometimes you just really want to like go somewhere, or get out and do stuff and your options are limited. Yeah. Yeah, like I I'm, you know, my my girlfriend and I have been very uh reluctant, I guess, to go to like patios and other things and so we'd rather, you know, eat on the balcony and just like, you know, not interact with other humans. So it's, uh, you know, but it, it's fine, I guess. It's, yeah. a, it's a learning curve, but, uh, but yeah, you know, at least everyone's healthy. Uh, so you have a, a new short film out, The, the Announcement. Um, yes. I, I think it's always challenging 
crafting a short film because you're you're telling you're you're trying to tell a whole story in a much smaller time frame um yes how do you how do you go about trying trying to get all this information together in in 10 15 minutes as opposed to an hour an hour and 20. you know i think it really just comes down to distilling it to its component parts it's saying all right what first off what is the story we are trying to tell you know who are these characters what are their journeys what are their arcs so similar to a long you know like format narrative or tv show you still go through that process of trying to figure out who your characters are, you know, what are their goals and what are their obstacles. And so there's still that component to it, but then it's saying, all right, how do we take this journey and compress it into a short period of time? And, you know, it's just writing and rewriting. And, you know, luckily for this project, working with a, a really talented screenwriter, uh, RJ Lackey, who comes with a ton of, you know, awesome ideas. And it's saying, okay, you know what, we want to, we want to get them from point A to point B. And this is kind of the, the journey that we take them on And, you know, I don't really think of it differently in whether it's a short or a feature or TV show. I think it's just, what's the medium you're working in um, kind of forces you into saying, okay, you know, we got 13 minutes or 12 minutes or four minutes. Like, you know, what, what are we focusing on? And, and for this one, it was very much, all right, we're focusing on kind of telling this back and forth journey between Olive and Johnny. And, you know, hopefully as the piece progresses, you know, and the information that you learn, things become recontextualized as you go. A lot of, shorts get expanded into features. Is that something you've talked with RJ about for, for this film? We haven't yet. Um, I wouldn't be against it potentially. I, I think it would really come down to what what is the story? Um, I think if we hone in on something that, you know, like you said earlier, you know, the, a short is sometimes like a small piece. This wasn't really created to say, okay, this is act one of uh of a feature um this was kind of its own standalone piece that obviously we're coming into this journey after the you know in the aftermath of something happening and their journey doesn't end at the end of the short but it was never intended to say okay this is like you know one small piece of a much larger story um you know i, I think if we were ever to expand it we would say, okay, this is a cool idea. This is, you know, this works as a short. How do we then adapt it into something else? Not just, let's just create a before and after. There's no dialogue uh, in the film other than, you know, some, some grunts and exhalations. <laughs> do you consider this then a silent film? Interesting. I hadn't really thought of it as a silent film, but in that context, yeah, I, I guess it, Kind of is there's there's one small line of dialogue at the very very end um but when i present it to people it's like all right here's a film that's in one long take with no dialogue so i i also you know specify that there is no dialogue um so i guess you could consider it a silent film it was constructed as a you know 
kind of as a challenge when I was coming up with, all right, what do I want to do? Um, cause I hadn't done a short in a while and we had some, um, some award money and otherwise that we were like, all right, let's create something cool and experiment a little bit and, and challenge ourselves. My mandate for myself was, all right, how do we tell really just a purely visual story? Let's tell a story that, you know, from vision, you know, cinematically, but also from a sound perspective, you know, it's all in, you know, a visual medium. Um, without cutting, you know, dialogue and, you know, two people talking in a cafe and things like that and say, like, all right, how do we do this? And, you know, these self-imposed restrictions of let's do this in one shot and let's do it without dialogue. It's like, all right, how do we tell this story? And so those were very specific touch points um, very early on. You know, and, and there's there's ominous music throughout, especially in a film like this, when other aspects of the story you need to enhance those other aspects of filmmaking to tell the story. How closely do you work with your composer and and your sound recordist uh, on a project like this? Yeah, so for the, the I, I think the music's great. Erica Procuti did a, a remarkable job and did it in a really kind of unique fashion where she was you know, recording sounds and um, so it wasn't, you know, there is some piano and otherwise, but it's not just, okay, and here's like the string section. Here's the, you know, it's actually like, all right, there's a, you know, the sound of a, you know, glass breaking. All right, how do we actually, you know, then she kind of puts it into her system and creates a sound that could become an instrument or a music note out of it. And so I don't really understand the process, but I was just like, yeah, let's experiment. Let's try something new. And, you know, I kind of gave her a bit of free reign. We, we touched upon, you know, what kind of soundscape we wanted. We didn't want to go too traditional in the sense of there is ominous music, but it's not like as, you know, abrasive perhaps as some other horrors or thrillers or whatnot. And so I know she in particular wanted to offset things a little bit. And so, you know, it, it's working closely with her and, you know, but what she was presenting, I really, really loved it. And so it was less of, oh, this isn't working, we need to accentuate this point. It was like, this transition from, you know, upstairs to downstairs, like, let's just work on, you know, getting from this part of the music to the other part, because there was, you know, it just kind of, it was a harder transition. So a lot of it was figuring out those transition points more so than, you know, we need to really hit home on this exact moment. Heightened emotions on on film can always be tricky. Um, I love Ben Kingsley's quote when he says, the camera is allergic to acting. Um, <laughs> how do you, how do you, what kind of conversations do you have with your actors about that fine line? Like you want mm. them to have these enhanced emotions because they're in this terrifying experience, but if it's too much, it can come across as sort of false or, 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 or fake. Um, what what is that conversation like in terms of how much to, to show and, and, and when to pull back? Yeah, that's a great question. For for this one, a lot of it was because there's no dialogue. Um, it's just a lot of conversations with the actors and ahead of time, you know, going, you know, they have a lot of questions about, all right, what's happening here? What's the motivation here? What's, you know, what is the character thinking? And I, you know, give as much of an answer as I can or want to, because I think a lot of that is, you know, the exploration on their side too. And once we got, uh, we did this over the course of a weekend, 
and you know the first day being more of a rehearsal and setup, and the second day was our shoot uh, our shoot day. And so the rehearsal for them, I think, also was really helpful because um, once we had like the beats of all right, this is how the movement goes. It really also influences the performance. Also, you know, wardrobe helps. You know, the actual location helps. And so for this, oddly enough, also it's almost because it is one shot and it is a, a true one, or there's no hidden cuts or anything like that. It's a pretty grueling, you know, experience for the actors to be on it for 12 minutes straight going through not only choreography and some action beats and a little bit of stunt work and otherwise, but the emotional roller coaster that they experience throughout it is something that I think just by the nature of how it was filmed allowed them to just kind of be, be a part of it. Um, because you kind of have to at that point, you, you can't be like, Oh, am I on my mark or not? Or you just, you're just going to go with it and wherever you land, you know, you've got to be aware that, you know, the camera will be there. Don't worry about it. And so it was kind of, you know, exciting for me as a director to say like, all right, you know, I can't, you know, when I'm, when I'm watching, um, you know, certain takes and we, I think got three full takes, you know, from start to finish that were, that were good. Um, you know, I can't go to them and give them a whole long list of notes because like, all right, you know, at four minutes, you, you know, I want you to do this. And at eight minutes do that. It, it was a bit more kind of pulled back than that. It was less specific. Um, and so, yeah, it's really just kind of trusting them to kind of follow that journey. Um, and the way we've made it, I think helped. The, this idea of, a one shot or, or doing an entire film in one shot, I think really came into parlance with Birdman, even though that wasn't <laughs> truly one shot. Um, what, what goes into just crafting a film like that? How, how much work do you have to do in pre-production to really get everything right, considering you're doing a 10 minute shot? A lot uh, is the short answer. The, um, I, I just, by nature of what I do, I, quite a bit. I generally storyboard. I have a, um, it's a great software actually, it's called Frameforge where it does, you know, for storyboarding, but also what's great is you can link two shots together and it'll fill in the blanks. So if you say like, you know, I want, it goes from this shot to this shot in three seconds, it'll actually then create a camera move with the characters moving. So it basically creates a previs for you. And I previs the entire short, um, which was a, uh, hell of a lot of work um, over the course of, you know, three stories and going back and forth and everything. Um, but I think it was really helpful because I was able to show the cinematographer and the steady cam operators and this is what I'm kind of having in mind. Um, what do you think? Or be able to show the actors and say like, all right, this is kind of where the positioning is. And it was actually, you know, it's a lot of work, but it paid off because we got to the rehearsal and I was able to say, all right, let's, Put the camera here and like with some minor variations the final it's actually about like 90 percent or 85 percent of what my previous was um which you know which was great and so for this kind of thing you need a lot of prep work you need a lot of conversation not just with the camera team but also with the you know especially with the actors especially with um because there are some you know some attributes especially with the stunt coordinator 
saying, all right, how are we going to do this safely and in camera without cutting? And like, what does that mean for where the camera needs to be? Um, you know, for, you know, the sound person, like where they're following because we can't see a boom at, at any point, you know, or the shot is ruined. Um, so there's a lot of rehearsal. There's just a lot of prep that goes into it. Um, but I think if you do it well, and for this one in particular, it was part of it was a challenge and part of it was, you know, I wanted the film to feel exploratory. And I think being able to have a camera that doesn't cut, you know, that as you know, it kind of creates three different point of views in the film. You have Olives and Johnny's and then the camera and each one is kind of revealing things in their own time and kind of mis, you know, misleading at certain points as well. And so for me, that was important to have this always exploring camera. It's just, it's a lot of really talented people working in tandem. How, how does the, the one shot, how does that affect the stunt work or, or the fight work? Because they only have basically one shot or one take to mm -hmm. do versus four or five. Yeah, that, that really comes down to rehearsal. Um, you know, that Saturday, our stunt coordinator's on set and they're doing... Um, they're figuring out what the movements are where, you know, the camera operator is there, you know, the city cam operator, and we're making sure that everything, you know, is safe and figuring out, like, okay, like, you know, it also really helped that um, our lead actor, Alex Mullary Jr., um, who was one of the leads on Dark Matter, had a extensive stunt work on, on that show and had a, you know, so he's very familiar with it. And so he really helped um, as well just to kind of, you know, have that comfort level. Um, and so, yeah, you kind of, you walk through the beats, you know, the coordinator, you kind of defer to them because it's, that's their, you know, that's their expertise. And, you know, I can say like, I want it to feel like this and kind of have, you know, this is the outcome of this moment. And it's up to them to really say like, all right, how is this going to play that is going to work best for camera, but also for the actors involved and for the safety of it. And so deferring to them, I think is really, you know, crucial in making sure that it not only comes across, across safely, but also it looks the best. Um, so yeah. Are we changing the notion of what a film is? You know, you see a film like The Artist, which was black and white and silent. You know, there's a big debate about Netflix and Amazon, whether they're a film or a show. And I, a lot of people are saying after COVID, we might not see the blockbuster anymore. It's gonna be a rebirth of, you know, independent experimental films. Where do you think we are in terms of what we are, our idea of what cinema is and, and what film is? That's a good question. Yeah. The, I, I think cinema is ever evolving, you know, to your point, I think, you know, the silent pictures to the talkies to, you know, you know then television comes in and then they bring in the anamorphic um, widescreen to bring people back to the theater and, yeah, I, I think there's always going to be evolution and revolution. Um, I think with COVID, it really does show that people have an appetite for content, but also they're just as happy watching it in their own home. <laughs> um, it's hard to say. It's one of those things that, you know, Netflix and Amazon movies and, you know, Disney Plus movies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think they are cinema in the way that, you know, not the way the controversy, the conversation, like blockbusters are just as much of cinema as, you know, art house dramas. I think there's different wavelengths of what constitutes a movie. 
um you know generally it's just like you know if it's 75 minutes and above it's technically a movie whatever platform it's launched on um is almost irrelevant it's you know it, it's telling a complete story in a long in a longer period of time than traditional television and i i think there's always going to be an appetite for it it's just you know times change uh, and people's viewing habits change and you know i'd love to go back to the theater i'm not sure if i would go this second um i i do love the theatrical experience i do love the you know the communal experience of it um and i do miss that um i'm one of the few that would you know actually you know want to say like yeah you know i go to the movies multiple multiple times a year not just for big blockbusters but i i think there's going to be a shift i think you know the theatrical experience is probably going to be primarily now even more so for the big blockbuster and home entertainment is going to be for the mid and smaller movies um i think it's going to be harder and harder to find in the you know quote-unquote art house film on a big theatrical stage after COVID, unfortunately. So then what, what does the industry look like when we, when we come out of this? <laughs> I'm curious what the industry looks like now. Um, it, it's hard, to, like, honestly, it's hard to say. I'm not an expert in it. I, I wouldn't want to necessarily weigh in and, and provide, you know, misinformation or just, you know, my view is there's always going to be content i think people need it i think it's something that sustains people like entertainment in different fashions has always existed and so i think it's just how people you know i guess find that entertainment you know whether it's at home or in theaters like the fact that drive-in movies are making a comeback is awesome like you know who would have thought that in 2020 something that kind of disappeared 30, 40 years ago is now, you know, what's sustaining the movie industry. Um, it, it's a little wild, but I, I think there is, you know, like I said, there's an appetite for it. And I, I wouldn't want to make comments on where it's going to, you know, what's going to happen in the future. I just hope that, you know, people support film. I, I think at the end of the day, that's the biggest thing is that, you know, there are stories that need to be told and, you know, you hope that the audience is there for them and willing to support them. You know, with, with people's ever increasingly short attention spans, are short films going to make a comeback, do you think? Hmm. Possibly. It's like, I, I think it's, it's funny. I, everyone always says like, you know, short attention spans and then you'll see like, you know, the biggest show is, you know, the crowd you know with you know hour-long journey you know, of 10 episode dramas and you're like you do not like that show does not require a short attention span like you need to really digest like you know those kinds of shows and so it's yeah, it's, it's funny like i i love watching you know short content because i think there is something that you're like okay like i can get in and out quickly i can you know get a story i can get some form of entertainment it's not going to take me an entire night it's not going to take me an entire weekend um, you know, I don't have to start the Sopranos on season one and, you know, nine seasons later, like, you know, I'm, I'm still here. Um, so I think there's value in short content. I think there's value in shorts. Like, um, I, I haven't done a short in a number of years 
because I mainly focus on features and you know getting more into television and things like that. But I think after doing this one, there's a there's a creative freedom to them. I think that you know you do miss out a lot on you know features or even TV because you have a lot more people you know that you answer to. Whereas on short projects, you know you know little creative projects, you have room to explore and to experiment and to create something that you otherwise probably wouldn't create. And, you know, that was something, especially for this project that going, whether it's the cinematographer or the composer or, you know, the, you know, getting, you know, getting, you know, you know for the city cameras or the production design, um, you know, there's no dialogue. The production design is basically the exposition of the, of the film and kind of having, you know, Daniela, our production designer come on board and say like, all right, you know, the information of this is coming from you. It's not coming from the actors in terms of like any context clues is purely art. And I don't know, like art department always has that element to it, but it's never riding on it. And so, you know, being able to go to an art team and say, hey, your job isn't just to design a house, it's to, you know, actually tell this story and create exposition, I think is something that, you know, they really responded to because other, you know, usually they're just, all right, here's just another project. It becomes, you know, more of a job, whereas this gives them some, you know, a little bit of more freedom. Well, the short film is The Announcement, uh, and it comes out on August the 4th. Uh, yes. Zach Birnbaum, thanks so much for your time this man. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All righty. Have a good day. You too. Thanks. Ciao. That was my conversation with director Zach Birnbaum. His new short film, The Announcement, is available on Vimeo starting August 4th. Also, the last porno show starring Nathaniel Chaduk will also be available on Vimeo starting today. That does it for me today. Stay tuned. My guest on Monday will be, I know I've been talking about her a while, she's finally here, post-human philosopher Francesca Ferrando. And also next week you'll hear from author Preston Lauterbach, his new book on the legendary, iconic Robert Johnson. And then later on we also have Jesse Thistle and um, Emma Donahue. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Artists like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>